0: We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Thomas Keels, author of Sesqui, Greed, Graft, and the Forgotten World's Fair of 1926. Thomas Keels, author of Sesqui, Greed, Graft, and the Forgotten World's Fair of 1926. What did you know about the sesquicentennial before you started writing this book? Well, back in
1: 2007, Brian, I wrote a book called Forgotten Philadelphia, Lost Architecture of the Quaker City, which Temple also published. And you may remember the cover photo of that book was this gigantic replica of the Liberty Bell studded with thousands of light bulbs straddling South Broad Street and i came across this photograph and i was absolutely fascinated by it and it turned out that this was the great entrance to something called the sesquicentennial international exposition of nineteen twenty six which was philadelphia's second world's fair after the eighteen seventy six centennial so i began doing research but i was asking people who were very knowledgeable about philadelphia history what do you know about the sesquicentennial? And they would sort of give me blank stares and say, what do you mean, the sesquicentennial, what? (laughs) And uh, very few people knew that Philadelphia hosted a second World's Fair in 1926.
0: Uh, Why was it forgotten?
1: Um, Part of it was because it was such a huge failure. The 1876 centennial really showed Philadelphia at its absolute best, this modern, progressive, industrial city with great landmarks, beautiful suburbs, etc. And unfortunately, the 1926 sesqui, everybody called it the sesqui, um, really showed the city at its absolute worst, ridden by boss politics, corruption, and what seemed to be a remarkable degree of inefficiency. So it was a big flop and a lot of the people responsible for it went out of their way to make sure that it would be forgotten. And the the phrase they used was sesqui? Sesqui. Was that Uh,
0: thought to be catchy?
1: (laughs) Well, it was sort of making the best of a bad situation. Sesqui is a Latinate term that means and a half. So a sesquicentennial is a centennial and a half or 150 years, and this fair marked the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. John Wanamaker, the department store magnate, um, who had actually been on the board of finance for the 1876 centennial, was still going strong in 1916. A was 79, but very hale and hearty and energetic, and he thought that a sesquicentennial, we have him to thank for that term, would both transform and reform his hometown. So in what terms is it deemed to be a failure? Well, first of all, it attracted fewer than 5 million paying visitors. This is less than half, the number of visitors to the 1876 centennial, when the population of America was about a third of what it was in 1926. Also, they had invented little things like the car, the airplane, the radio, things that should have gotten the word out about this World's Fair, and that should have gotten a lot more people to come to it. They were anticipating anywhere between 30 and 50 million visitors. Why didn't it draw better? Um, A whole number of factors. As I mentioned before, the boss politics of the city sort of played a major role. Um, John Wanamaker envisioned holding the Sesqui on the new Fairmount Parkway. We know it today as the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. In 1916, it was nearing completion, and it was the biggest civic improvement in Philadelphia for decades. It was going to be our show place. It would be our Champs-Élysées, our Untenden Linden, you name it. So there would be a great World's Fair there. The boulevard would be lined with all of these magnificent permanent buildings that after the fair would be used to house federal, state offices. They would be the new homes of places like the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. And then, of course, the... Um, icing on the cake would be a new magnificent temple um, that would be used for the Museum of Art atop the Fairmount Plateau. That was the original design. Then um, William S. Fair, who was the U.S. congressman for the 1st District and at that point was very busy becoming Philadelphia's undisputed political boss, decided that the Fair needed a new home. It would be in the swamps of South Philadelphia, um, which just happened to be in the midst of his congressional district. This was by far the most poverty-stricken, isolated, lightly populated, desolate area of Philadelphia. We're talking about the area known as the Neck, which is really the area just above the Navy Yard at the very southern tip of Broad Street. Um, It was basically the city's dumping ground. It was full of ash heaps, trash piles, small farms. There was only one paved road connecting it with Center City, one trolley line. Um, In some areas, the
0: soil was like 12 or 15 feet below the level of South Broad Street. So it was the uh, William Vare's say-so alone that uh, put the fair there? In the early 1920s, people were
1: comparing William Vare to Mussolini, who was the fascist dictator who at that point was busy dismantling every democratic process in Italy. The only difference they noted was that, um, unlike the citizens of Philadelphia, Italians enjoyed clean water, clean streets, and efficient transportation. Um, Vere had sort of battled his way to the top. He had outlived or outlasted the other big political bosses that were vying for control in early 20th century Philadelphia. And by the early 1920s, he controlled City Hall, The new mayor, W. Freeland Kendrick, was basically Vera's puppet. The two men were fellow Shriners and had known each other for years. He controlled something like 20 out of 21 seats on the city council, most of the major appointees, the sheriff, the recorder of deeds. And he had a whole army of lieutenants that sort of controlled the city, that people compared to Mussolini's black shirts. And these included policemen ward bosses, and also poll watchers. These nice, usually very muscular young men who would show up at the polls on Election Day and would make sure that anybody who supported there voted early and often and would make sure that any opponents did not vote. A congressional committee around this time determined that the average Philadelphian had a one in eight chance of having his or her vote accurately counted on Election Day. So, yes, he could do whatever he wanted to. And what he did, not directly, he always stayed behind the scenes. But, for instance, Mayor Kendrick, his puppet, um, arranged to have himself named president of the Sesquicentennial Exhibition Association, the fair's governing body. He promptly proceeded to pack it with fair allies, with all of the Um, organization men. uh, The Republican machine that controlled the city was known as the organization. So basically, the entire governing body of the fair, along with the city council and the mayor, would do anything the fair asked. And what he asked was to have the fair moved from the Fairmount Parkway, the city's beauty spot, down to the swamps
0: of the Neck, which was not its beauty spot. Was it sort of a given that there would be a big celebration for the 150th or was it controversial? Um, Most people supported it at first. Um, John Wanamaker
1: was a tremendously popular individual. He was really sort of like the grand old man of Philadelphia up until his death in 1922. And so if he supported it, people thought it would be a great idea. They really did think that it would help to remake the entire city. Um, But after Wanamaker died in 1922, and after it became evident that this was becoming more of a boondoggle for the Republican organization, then support for the fair began to fall away. A lot of, especially the city's social and economic elite, who had originally favored the fair, began to turn against it. Um, Edward T. Stotesbury was the head of Drexel Morgan, the city's largest investment bank, one of the wealthiest men in America. He was originally the treasurer of the fair's governing body. Well, by 1922-23, he was completely disgusted by what was going on. He was actively preaching against the fair. So, with Samuel Voclain, the head of Baldwin Locomotive Works, he said a sesquicentennial would be as welcome as jazz
0: music at a funeral. You say there was an organization, the Anti-Sesquicentennial Exposition Association. Very good, yes. I mean, as if sesquicentennial
1: wasn't enough of a tongue twister, now you had the Anti-Sesquicentennial Organization. And this was composed of people like Sam Vauclain, Edward Stotesbury, a lot of the city's largest employers, bankers, and manufacturers, who, one, were disgusted by the politics behind the fair, but, two, were afraid that a World's Fair attracting millions of people to Philadelphia would be an inflationary influence. They were afraid it might raise taxes, real estate prices, and, most importantly, workers' wages, which they certainly did not want.
0: Who decides that it's a World's Fair? I mean, what's a governing body that says you will be a World's Fair? (laughs) Well,
1: nowadays, it's the Bureau of International Expositions, which is located in Paris. This was formed in the late 1920s. So before then, it was basically anybody's call. It was, we're going to hold a World's Fair. We sent out invitations. Everybody come unfortunately even though the sesqui was supposed to be a world's fair because the organization was so lackadaisical people were spending too much time battling for control deciding where the fair would be or wouldn't be that nobody actually got around to planning it and so the fair the sesqui actually had very few foreign countries that staged exhibits there. There were something like 24 nations, but only about seven or eight of them actually built their own pavilions. And these were small things like Czechoslovakia, Cuba, um, not really the great world powers. Uh, Places like France and England sort of realized this is not going to be a winning proposition. Let's keep our hands off.
0: Did they use models of other world's fairs that they could point to and say, we want to be like that one? And were there successful world fairs before that?
1: Oh, hugely. Well, I mean, the 1876 centennial really set the pace. As I mentioned before, it attracted over 10 million visitors at a time when the entire United States United States population was less than 50 million. And then, of course, you had the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, the White City with its devil. Um, you had the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Let's Meet
0: Me in St. Louis, Louis. Meet Louis. Me
1: in St. Louis. And you had the 1915 um, Panama Pacific Exhibition in San Francisco. And if you look at photographs, each of these fairs have these magnificent gorgeous neoclassical structures. They're all Beaux-Arts. It looks like ancient Rome and Greece come back to life. And so that was going to be the model. And if you look at the original designs for the fair, the ones along the Fairmount Parkway, that's sort of what it looks like. But by the time it was moved down to the swamps of South Philadelphia, first of all, they spent so much time and so much money simply bringing in landfill to shore up the swampy ground that by the time they were ready to actually build buildings, they had to go with the simplest, most rudimentary designs possible, whatever they could throw up most quickly and cheaply. Did anybody at any point say, this is nuts. Let's move it back to the parkway. (laughs) I think people tried to, but the organization, um, VAERS' organization, was such a juggernaut. It was such an unstoppable force. And also, Philadelphia sort of had a reputation during this period as being almost like sleepwalkers. Uh, You may remember Lincoln Steffen's 1905 quote that Philadelphians were corrupt and contented. And he later said that by contented, he didn't really mean happy, but more uh, somnolent, asleep, like sheep. And they would do whatever their Republican leaders told them to. So what would the big draw have been for the sesquicentennial? Well, um, that's a good question. People were promoting it as, look, this is the first World's Fair since the Great World War. It was only one World War at that point this would be a chance for the nations of the world to reassemble to sort of rejoin you know world peace we could have our little league of nations down in south philadelphia it would show all of the great technological achievements since 1876 electricity movies radios cars etc it would really show the great advances that had brought 1926 America to this height of popularity and prosperity that it had never imagined before. That was the goal. Didn't quite work out that way. Well who paid for it? Where did the money come from to do all this? The money came mostly out of the Philadelphia City Treasury. And the financing of the fair was one of the great mysteries that I spent hours trying to unravel. And I finally sort of threw up my hands. I think you'd need the greatest forensic accountant in history to try to figure it out. Um, The city received very little money from either the state government or the federal government. The governor of Pennsylvania, Gifford Pinchot, was a progressive Republican who was a starch enemy of uh, William S. Fair. The two men were at loggerheads. And so he only allocated about a hundred, actually less than a million dollars, and all of that was dedicated to the Pennsylvania State Building.
0: And you say he didn't even show
1: up on opening day. He didn't even show up on opening day. Now, of course, Fair had helped to really sort of poison the water by running against Pinchot and the incumbent senator, George Wharton Pepper, for the Republican nomination for U.S. senator from Pennsylvania. And only a couple of weeks before the sesqui opened, he won. Um, so Pinchot not only refused to show up for the Fair... But he also launched an investigation claiming that Vare's campaign was full of fraud, that he had bullied people, all sorts of things like that. Um, So that was the state. The federal government, um, the fair planners had been hoping for maybe $10, $20 million from the U.S. government. Well, a lot of Democrats in Congress thought that this was nothing more than a Republican boondoggle headed by Vare. And to a certain extent, they were right. They absolutely refused to budge, and there was a point where it looked like the fair might be getting maybe $500,000 from the federal government. Um, finally, people were able to turn the screws a little bit, and the sesqui did get a federal allocation of about $3 million. But so this is $4 million for a fair that was budgeted at well over $25 million. Um, the city kept passing through all of these bills they had something at the time called councilmanic loans this was sort of like today's walking around money it was sort of undocumented loans and the entire council could join forces and put together a large councilmanic loans that was really sort of off the books well there are records of numerous councilmanic loans being passed to finance the fair on record something like 10 to 15 million dollars probably more like 30 to 40 million dollars
0: Was the idea that they would eventually make their money back? Um, I think at a
1: certain point they just said, we've gone this far, we have to keep on going, we keep getting directions from Bill Vare and the mayor. I mean, uh, Mayor Kendrick, he, he was the president of the fair board, but at certain points, his conduct almost seemed to be erratic, if not irrational. He kept cutting back the fare because he was looking at how the city was sinking into the sea of red ink because of all these loans. And then, you know, in the middle of saying, well, we have to cut the fare back, suddenly he was telling council that they had to annex another, oh, say, 400 acres of land for parking spaces. And council was saying, where, where where's the money going to come from, but they had to go with the vote. It was a very well-oiled machine.
0: When you were working on this book, did you come across kind of souvenirs or posters oh. or hats or any of that fun stuff? Tons. For a Forgotten World's Fair, this is probably the
1: most Documented um, souvenir, written World's there ever. If you go on eBay and you know uh, type in sesquicentennial Centennial 1926, first of all, there are tons of photographs. Um, there Kodak. Um, th- this was the era of the brownie camera, so people were taking. You know, hundreds of thousands of photographs of themselves at the Sesqui. Uh, You could have your, uh, you could have home movies if you were fairly well off. You could even have a home movie camera and have your film developed at the Kodak Pavilion at the fair. But there were things like, of course, the Liberty Bell was the symbol of the fair. So you have Liberty Bell ashtrays, Liberty Bell pin cushions, Liberty Bell toasters, you name it, it had the Liberty Bell. There was even a Liberty Bell dolly, this sort of stuffed uh, cupid doll that had the Liberty Bell as a spreading skirt.
0: Did you save any of the souvenirs? Are you a souvenir collector?
1: I have a few of them, but I was more interested in the documentation, trying to trace down the paperwork and trying to figure out how did this fair actually come about and... Where did the money go? That was the big question. This just there there was so much money spent and so little to show for it that you really wonder, you know, whose pockets did it end up in?
0: Well, you say here that uh, Chicago-based William Wrigley Jr. Company and Philadelphia chocolatier H. O. Wilbur and Sons of Wilbur Buds also alleged that. Melvin and Abraham, two of the, the director of concessions, was one of them, uh, had demanded that they advertise in a daily sesqui program in exchange for the chewing gum and chocolate concessions at the fair. Other companies charged that Abrahams had instructed them to use certain suppliers or to provide kickbacks in order to win sesqui concessions. hmm.
1: Unfortunately, well, I'm sure you've heard many people talk about Philadelphia's pay to play culture. This was the high noon of pay to play. And so William Abrams, who was the director of concessions, very powerful post, you know, who gets to sell hot dogs, root beer, etc. cetera. Um, he was a close friend of Mayor Kendrick's. He actually supplied all of the uniforms for Kendrick's Shriner's Temple, the Lulu Temple on Spring Garden Street. And so he sort of got this very important post, which he said he was not accepting any salary for because he believed in the fair so much. And then suddenly all of these rumors begin to emerge that he's pay- he's playing the pay to play game that you know if you want to sell your root beer or your popcorn or your chocolate at the fair you're going to have to pay up front and of course it was all covered by this supposed sesqui program which the fair's governing body had never heard of and this achieved national publicity so when the fair actually took place there were relatively few concessions there you could not buy hires root beer Um, You could not buy Hershey chocolate. You could not buy a lot of things there because many reputable companies simply refused to play and they walked away. You could also not buy alcohol. Oh, well, you couldn't buy alcohol anywhere. This was prohibition, so nobody bought alcohol.
0: But I do want to read this. You say, despite stiff competition from New York, Chicago, and Detroit, Philadelphia was renowned as the wettest city in the wettest state in the Union.
1: Yes. We, um, we never had an Al Capone, uh, but we did have Max Bubu Hoff, and Max Hoff was the biggest bootlegger and converter of industrial alcohol in the United States. He was sending carloads of denatured alcohol um, out to the Midwest to sort of supply Al Capone and his gang. Um, he basically was this very quiet, shy little man. His boyhood nickname was Boo Boo. And it's funny, if you look at him, he always wore bow ties. And he even looks a bit, a little bit like Boo Boo Bear from Yogi Bear. <laughs> you sort of wonder if the, um, you know, Hannam Barbera came from Philly. But he ran this multimillion dollar organization that would take industrial alcohol, um, take out most of the poison, not all of it, but most of it and then rebottle it in nice old bottles so that it looked like real scotch or real gin and sell it to people throughout Philadelphia. Um, now, Kendrick knew that the city had an image problem. That's the mayor. Mayor Kendrick, yeah, W. Freeland Kendrick. And he actually hired, um, as his director of public safety, the guy in charge of all the police and everything, a marine general called Smedley Darlington Butler, local guy, grew up in Westchester, um, had won two Congressional Medals of Honor, known as the Fighting Marine, real tough guy, and said, you have to clean up Philadelphia before the sesqui. Well, unfortunately, Butler believed his boss and began cleaning up the city. He even tried closing down the big hotels on South Broad Street like the Bellevue Stratford and the Ritz-Carlton because they were selling lots of booze to their customers. And this was when Kendrick got a little upset. It's like, well, when I, you know, there's closing things down and then there's closing things down. Look at all the little places down in South Philly. Close them down. Butler got disgusted. He finally resigned. And only a couple of weeks before the Sesqui opened, he began writing this 30-part newspaper um, sort of autobiography, combating vice and crime. And this was appearing in papers throughout America, including the Bulletin in Philadelphia. Every day, people could read about what a corrupt cesspool Philadelphia was, how corrupt and on the take its mayor was, how the sesqui was nothing more than a big boondoggle for the mayor's real boss, Bill Vare, and how uh, this guy, Butler, was completely powerless to fight it. So talk about the worst PR in the world. This was appearing everywhere just before the fair opened.
0: I want to read you something else. It's uh, prompted by Gifford Pinchot, the governor. The state attorney general charged that the sesquicentennial was violating its state charter and breaking the Pennsylvania Blue Laws of 1794, which banned most amusements and commercial activities on the Sabbath. This fair couldn't
1: take a break. Um, I think at a certain point you have to look at it and say they did build it on top of a desecrated Indian burial ground, because there's no other excuse for why all these things happened. The fair was desperate for money and desperate for visitors. So it decided that it was going to open on Sunday. This is the 1920s. A lot of people still work six days a week. And so Sunday attendance is a really important factor and it had been done before. Um, the Centennial was open on some Sundays, the 1893 Chicago Fair, so they weren't like breaking a president, but there were so many religious Americans called Sabbatarians, thou shalt not do anything on the Sabbath, that they really protested vociferously that the Fair was open on Sunday, and Gifford Pinchot, who was sort of looking for an excuse to bash the fair anyway, was more than willing to join their cause and really try to get the fair shut down on Sunday. He didn't succeed, but he kept a constant barrage of legal actions going against the fair all through its uh, its duration. Did he ever go to the fair? He went once, on May 29th, two days before the fair officially opened, to open the Pennsylvania State Building, and it was not a happy occurrence. First of all, they were still building the building. They were still building everything. The fair was only about a quarter finished when, on opening day. You say, and some people said, let's postpone it a year. Oh, yeah, and this had been done before. The 1893 um, Chicago World's Fair, that was supposed to open in 1892. Uh, the 1904 St. Louis Fair, that was supposed to open in 1903. And they looked at it and said, we need another year. People were telling Mayor Kentrick, "You've got to postpone this fair for a year." And there were federal government representatives who were saying, "If you open it now, you might get a couple of million dollars from us. Wait until 1927, you'll get at least 10 million dollars." He refused to listen to them. As a matter of fact, he even opened up. He even moved up the fair's opening day from June 1, 1926 to May 31st, 1926. Why not wait? He wanted to get it done. Um, I think a lot of it was he was feeling pressure from his political boss. We need to get this done. Um, You know, a lot of our friends in the contracting and construction business have, you know, put a lot of money into this. They need to get paid. So we're not going to wait another year. Get it done now. But the reason that he moved it up 24 hours when it was already horribly behind schedule was because he wanted to welcome all of his fellow Shriners to Philadelphia. He was a past imperial potentate of the Imperial Order of the Shriners. It's this long convoluted name, but you know, it's the guys in the Fezzes who run around little cars. And he wanted to welcome a a quarter million, 250,000 Shriners to Philadelphia on the first day of their convention, which would be June 1st but most of them were coming in on Sunday or Monday. So he said, come to Philadelphia, we will have the fair open on May 31st, Memorial Day, and it will be in honor of you. We'll devote the first three days of the fair to you. How'd it go? It was a disaster. Are you surprised? Um, (laughs) I told you, Indian burial ground. Um, The Shriners show up. Um, First of all, as I said, the fair was only about a quarter finished. There were like two displays over all 1,000 acres of the fair that were actually open and running. You would go into the big palaces and all you would find would be workmen unpacking crates because the palaces have just been finished. And the Shriners found out that they were the main attraction. They kept throwing all of these large rallies and parades in the new stadium, the Sesqui Stadium, and they were sort of like playing to themselves. And, of course, they were trying to get back and forth from Center City, where they were staying. And there were constant traffic jams and backups on South Broad Street, the one really operational street between the fair and Center City. So after three days of this absolute fiasco, a quarter million Shriners go home across America and Canada and basically tell all of their friends, don't bother with Kendrick's Carnival huge public relations disaster.
0: You mentioned the stadium, can you talk about that? Um, The main
1: legacy of the fair was going to be a new stadium. And Philadelphia had actually had um, stadium envy for some time. We had been the traditional home at the Army-Navy game, well, early in the 20th century, we lost it to New York because we didn't have a stadium capable of seating more than 50,000 people. Franklin Field at the U of P was too small. So the main legacy of the fair was going to be this gigantic new stadium that would seat over 100,000. And that was actually the first thing that got moved down to South Philadelphia. So when the stadium moved, you knew that the sesqui had to follow. It was built um, during the early part of 1926. Construction was very rushed. Um, The Enquirer was conducting an investigation into shoddy construction the uh, stadium was actually built in se- in different sections. Each like section was built separately to speed up construction, which was great, except that they were all sinking into the soggy soil at different rates. So they kept having to go back and jack up section eight because it was a foot lower than section seven. Um, so the they were having a very rough time because this was supposed to be the big showcase of the fair. Most of the activities were scheduled there, and yet it almost didn't, you know, open because of safety concerns. The stadium outlasted the exposition. The stadium was one of the few real survivors of the fair. It lasted until 1992. It became Municipal Stadium, and then, of course, John F. Kennedy Stadium in 1964, but it was always very underused during its life. Um, They did start holding the Army-Navy game there, And that was its big thing for many, many years. And then, of course, you also had the rock concerts back in the 80s and 90s. Um, Farm Aid, Live Aid, um, all the different concerts that were there. Everybody in Philadelphia nowadays has
0: memories of going to at least one concert there. And uh, in your book, you say that during the fair, the Jack Dempsey-Jean Tunney fight, the first Jack Dempsey-Jean Tunney fight took place?
1: The first um, fight between Gene Tunney, the fighting Marine, and Jack Dempsey, the Manassa Mauler, took place at the sesquicentennial, one of the few bright spots of the fair. But even that sort of has a dark lining. Um, originally, the fair was going to be fought in New York, and then it was going to be moved to Chicago— But each of those cities said, no, Jack Dempsey, who is the reigning heavyweight champion, should not fight Gene Tunney. He should fight Harry Wills, the Black Panther, an African-American fighter who had won the world-colored boxing championship two years in a row. Um, But the color line was very strong in boxing at the time. Dempsey refused to fight a black fighter. So this was
0: before Joe Lewis.
1: This was before Joe Lewis. This was in the 20s. After Jack Johnson, around 1915, that color line was drawn, and blacks were really excluded from major league boxing. And so, both New York and Chicago, which really relied on their black voters, said, no, you can't fight here unless he fights Harry Wills. Philadelphia had a much more quiescent, laid-back, black voting bloc who were really enthralled to Bill Ver and the organization. And so uh, the mayor said, hey, come fight whoever you want to, just do it in our stadium. And so you had the fight of a century and a half in Philadelphia. Who won? Oh, it was Gene Tunney. Um, Jack Dempsey was not in shape. Um, and it's funny because Dempsey was really the three-to-one favorite going in. Tunney was the popular favorite. Everybody liked him. He was young and handsome and popular. Uh, Dempsey, Dempsey sort of had all of this baggage. There were rumors that he had been a draft dodger during World War I. And so it was a huge success um, when Tunney actually won, and he won by decision after 10 rounds. But by that point, Dempsey was basically dead on his feet. Um, And then, of course, the two men met again in 1927 at Soldier Field in Chicago, and Tunney won again, but that was the fight where they had the controversial long count. I don't know if you've Mm -hmm. heard of that, where Mm -hmm. basically Dempsey was down and out, and they, you know, they, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but when Tunney was knocked out, they seemed to be counting much more slowly. So lots of controversy. Did the exposition get any good publicity? To think. I, yes, it did. Um, well, there was the fight, and it actually came away with glowing reports. Everybody from outside who wasn't familiar with affairs politics was really impressed by how Philadelphia had cleaned itself up and the new stadium. But there was one um, really outstanding attraction that um, was one of the few things to make money. This was the High Street of 1776, and this was the work of the Women's Committee. The Women's Committee was mostly composed of socially prominent women um, whose husbands, for the most part, had sort of backed away from the fair because of the politics. Uh, Kendrick appealed to them, please come in and help us make something. And so they got together. Many of these were women whose families dated back to the colonial and the revolutionary era. They decided to recreate Market Street or High Street, as it was known then, the main drag in Philadelphia, and line it with recreations of twenty-two historic yet vanished buildings. Uh, Things like the Slate Roof House where William Penn first lived in Philadelphia, the old courthouse which was the site of government before Independence Hall, the house where Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Some of these have been reconstructed since then, but this was a little wooden, a little mud-covered street with all of these Buildings, it was on a very human scale, whereas the rest of the sesqui was vast and huge plazas, etc. It had lovely little gardens, places where you could sit and rest, little restaurants, and it was a huge hit. Um, each of the buildings was sponsored by a different woman's organization. Um, the women, you know, Well, they got a big honking grant from the fair's governing board, so that definitely helped. They had a lot of sway and they used it, but they ran it very effectively. They had historical reenactors, they had a town crier, pageants going on, costume guides who would answer your questions. Years before Williamsburg, this was like a little mini Williamsburg, and it attracted over 5,000 visitors a day, whereas a lot of the rest of the fair was empty.
0: Well, take us on a walk through the fair. If you had gone to the sesquicentennial exposition on, say, the best day, the, the peak of the, of the exposition, uh, and you walked up toward the entrance, what would you have experienced, and, and as you walked through it, what would you
1: have seen? Well, the first thing you would encounter is you were coming up to what is now Marconi Plaza, it was known back then as Oregon Plaza, would be this gigantic Liberty Bell. And this was the one that I told you about. It had huge stanchions, it was about 80 feet tall, Um, And it was covered with 26,000 light bulbs in various colors. And so at nighttime, these lights, brown, amber, gold, rose, would sort of shimmer, and it would really look like glowing molten metal. And you could see it three and a half miles north. So that that would be the first thing you would see. You would go through the main entrance at Packer Avenue, and on your left would be the two primary palaces. Oh, first, a ticket. You buy that? How to buy a ticket. How you much had to ticket? buy a ticket. A ticket was 50 cents. It had been 25 cents for the centennial, so inflation. Um, And, of course, people were very disappointed because they wanted a real physical ticket to save as a souvenir. Well, these were new ticketless turnstiles. You put in your 50 cents, and somebody would press a button, and you would just pass through. So people were very upset they didn't have a ticket stub to save. But once you pass through at Packer Avenue, which was sort of like the actual entrance to the fair, you would bear left, and then you would have the two large palaces that held most of the exhibits for the fair. And the first one was the Palace of Manufacturers. and this had booths for every single manufacturing company in America, very fanciful booths. But it was really sort of like a traditional World's Fair, it was like here are piles of stuff. Here's the IBM counter. Look, here are new card tabulating machines, the ancestors of computers. Here's the Edison booth, and here's a gigantic model of an Edison phone, which is an early, you know, voice recorder. Um, you would have the AT&T showing you what a modern-day switchboard looked like, but it was it was not really interactive. It was not really
0: exciting. It was very traditional. You say somewhere in your book that people detractors said you could get a more interesting experience going to a department store. And you wouldn't have to pay
1: 50 cents admission, exactly. Um, That was a big uh, charge against the fair. It's like there's very little that is new and exciting here. That was why the Street of 1776 stood out, because hey, you actually got involved, you interacted, you could watch a puppet show, people would talk to you, you could shake hands with George Washington, and at the rest of the fair you were looking at things, big piles of things. Um, that between the two main palaces, there was this very interesting place. There was this tall metal tower. It was a skeletal metal tower that sort of looked like a fire warden's tower. Well, this was supposed to be the tower of light. If you look at the initial designs, there are these gorgeous art deco designs for this huge 175 foot shaft topped by this incredible tower um, that had two of the largest searchlights ever built. And this was the light of independence that would change darkness into light for miles around. Well, unfortunately, they got as far as putting up the metal framework, and then they ran out of money. And the city said, we don't have any more money to give you. So (laughs) this huge, gorgeous tower, which, of course, was shown on all of the programs until the end of the fair, uh, that was the cover illustration, was nothing more than this sort of skeleton with this tiny little searchlight tacked on top, very feeble. And, uh, you know, people kept looking for the Tower of Light that never was. What was in the Pennsylvania exhibition? The Pennsylvania exhibition was really interesting. It was one of the architectural gems of the fair. As you might imagine, given the time constraints, most of the fair was pretty undistinguished architecturally. The Pennsylvania building was built by a modernist architect called Ralph Benker, and it consisted of wings spreading out from a central rotunda, very sort of art deco, very modernist. And inside, you had artwork by all of the great artists painting in Pennsylvania at the time. Violet Oakley, one of her um, uh, big murals that would be in the Pennsylvania Senate in Harrisburg was on display. Um, Redfield, um, there was this huge gorgeous painting called the Delaware Water Gap which is now at the Doylestown Museum of Art, the James Michener Museum of Art. So you had all of these beautiful displays of art. Um, you also had Liberty Bells. Um, the one in Independence Hall was not the only Liberty Bell. There were like Liberty Bells from seven other cities, York, Lancaster, etc that had rung on July 8th to celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So in a way, this building was sort of a little statement, a little dig, by Governor Pinchot it's like well the rest of the fair is pretty undistinguished but we have this gorgeous building filled with gorgeous art and maybe Philadelphia has forgotten about the meaning of democracy but we haven't
0: and how many different countries had it exhibits
1: only about 14 Um, And as I said, most of them were basically displays in the large palaces um, by individual manufacturers, private concerns. Both England and France had pulled out of the um, fair because they did not think it was going to be completed on time. The major display came from Japan. Um, Japan was experiencing a lot of trade and political tensions with America at the time. It was sort of like pushing for more power in the Far East. And so it saw the sesquicentennial as a very good diplomatic proposition. As a matter of fact, before the fair opened, the Japanese ambassador gave the city of Philadelphia 1,600 flowering fruit trees that were scattered throughout Fairmount Park. And many of them are still alive today, you know, cherries, apples. So you had this beautiful Japanese um, pavilion with the sliding uh, paper doors and things like that, very light and airy. It was on Edgewater Lake, so it had a beautiful lake view. And you could go there and witness Japanese dancing, the Japanese tea ceremony, um, silk work, pearls, etc. It was considered one of the most aesthetically pleasing exhibits at the entire fair.
0: There also was an exhibit by the American Birth Control League. There was an exhibit by the American
1: Birth Control League which would later become Planned Parenthood. Fairly early for that. Fairly early but it, it it was considered very important but it was actually right next to another display that was far more controversial. Um, It was for the American Eugenics Society, the AES, which had been founded in 1923. Eugenics was this fairly new science that had been developed in the late 19th century that basically said what we're doing with animal husbandry, breeding the best to the best, we can do with humans as well. And we will create a better breed of humans, but we'll also breed out things like imbecility, immorality, slothfulness. All of the social ills will disappear
0: as we move toward this super race. You're right that the old line, uh, their message was that the old line America composed of superior northern European stock or Nordics was under siege from the immigrant hordes of Alpines, southern Europeans mediterraneans Eastern Europeans, not to mention the armies of American Negroes moving north to the great industrial cities.
1: Yes, the AES, the American Eugenics Society, um, behind this sort of facade of pseudoscience was really um, advancing a cause of anti immigrant, anti black. It was very racist, um, so much so that in the 1930s, when Adolf Hitler took control of Germany, he started putting into place the first laws for involuntary sterilization of uh, Germans who were considered inferior. He based those laws on laws that had been passed in the American states as a result of AES lobbying.
0: And you say that Ku Klux Klan was planning a big rally here in Philadelphia to yes. coincide with the exhibition. yes. In the 1920s, the Ku
1: Klux Klan was actually enjoying a resurgence. And by 1925, they were estimating that they had 5 million members, men, women, and children. And you may have seen those very disturbing pictures of them at their 1925 Klon vocation, K-L-O, yes, um, marching down Pennsylvania Avenue in their white robes and hoods with the dome at the Capitol. Well, that was such a huge success that in 1926, they decided that they would do the same thing on South Broad Street. And the disturbing thing is, is that the management of the fair, including Mayor Kendrick, welcomed them with open arms. The fair was drowning in red ink. It's like 100,000 paying customers. They can wear whatever we, they want. We don't care. Just come and pay. And um, again, it was a sign of how out of touch um Philadelphia's government was and, you know, how, how little they thought of, say, Jewish, African-American citizens. They sort of trampled on their rights. And it was not until it was discovered that the Klan was going to hold its Klan on September the 11th and 100,000 Klansmen were going to be in Philadelphia that uh, the uproar began and a lot of religious leaders, Catholic, Jewish, and African-American, immediately began protesting. The disturbing thing is, is that even then, Kendrick did not say no. It was not until Rabbi Louis Wolsey, who was then the rabbi of Congregation Rodef Shalom in Philadelphia, published this letter shaming Kendrick, and he was exquisitely polite. He was saying, you're an intelligent man, you probably have overlooked the fact that the principles of the KKK, their refusal to acknowledge the rights of anyone who isn't white Protestant native-born really run counter to the principles of the Declaration of Independence which you're celebrating with your fair. It's like, just think about it a little bit. And this letter attracted so much attention that finally Kendrick backed down and said, OK, the Klan's the not coming. But that's a sign of how disordered and dysfunctional much of the thinking behind the fair management was.
0: Now, the exposition uh, did have a committee on, what they call the Committee on Negro Activities. Yes. And this is another sad chapter of the fair, so many
1: sad chapters. But um, this was basically window dressing. Um, The African-American community of Philadelphia was upset over the fact that the KKK was coming, that the fair was hosting the Tunney-Dempsey fight, even though Harry Wills should have been the contender, um, that there was this need to do something to address their concerns. And so they chose a fellow named John C. Asbury, a former state representative, Philadelphia's leading black lawyer and banker, Um, who was the chairman of the committee. They had a hundred of the city's leading black citizens on the committee, and once they appointed it, that was it. Um, It took an appeal to the White House to get the fair's governing board to give a paltry grant of $12,500, and that was all that these people got to fund all of their activities and programs. They did have A. Philip Randolph as a speaker. Was it at the opening ceremony? A. Philip Randolph, on opening day, you had Herbert Hoover, the Secretary of Commerce, Frank Kellogg, the Secretary of State, and then you have this young firebrand, African-American, probably the most radical African-American leader of the time. Um, who spoke about the need for equal rights for Afro-Americans, that was his term for African-Americans, and how America would not be a truly great nation unless it gave up Jim Crow segregationism. But again, this was window dressing. A group of black leaders had talked to Kendrick the week before the fair opened and said, look, you've shut us out of the construction. You've shut us out of the jobs. We don't have any exhibits. You've got to do something or else you're going to lose our vote come November. And so this was sort of like window dressing. Randolph was invited on less than a week's notice to
0: speak. uh, You... The fair did get some good publicity. You're right, in mid-August, the New York Times gave it official seal of approval, and the New York Times said it appears now to uh, take the place that properly belongs to it as one of the great American international expositions. And it is now giving the best show for 50 cents admission that it is to be had in the United States in the judgment of the thousands who are pouring into the grounds from all quarters of the country. So it's not all bad. It's not all
1: bad and there were wonderful things to see and do. I mean, you could go to the Spanish pavilion and see Goya's and Velazquez's beautiful Quixote tapestries that had never been outside of Spain before. I mentioned the Japanese exhibit with its wonderful attractions. Uh, You could go to the Palace of Art and see all of these artists that many Americans were unfamiliar with, with names like Matisse. Picasso, Kandinsky. But also, there was a gallery devoted to works by Auguste Rodin, uh, the French sculptor. Jules Mastbaum, who was one of the directors of the sesquicentennial, had become a huge devotee of Rodin's works. And he had bought over a hundred sculptures. He had commissioned sculptures like The Gates of Hell that had never been done during Rodin's lifetime. And he brought many of these back to America and put them on display at the sesquicentennial. And then after the fair ended, they went into the Rodin Museum, which currently stands on the parkway. And the Philadelphia Orchestra did uh, weekly concerts? You could go to the auditorium, and you could see concerts by Leopold Stokowski leading the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, They had other orchestras. The New York Philharmonic played there. They had pageants. Um, If you went over to the auditorium, I'm sorry, if you went over to the stadium and it was one of the few nights where it wasn't raining, you could see this immense spectacle called Freedom, which had something like 35 acts and it showed man's driving toward independence all the way... From the age of the Ichthosauri and Tyrannosauri, yes, you had uh, cavemen fighting papier-mâché dinosaurs, <laughs> and going all the way up to the present day with George Washington and the signing of the Declaration. Uh, I mean, it was, and uh, you even had four dancing elephants. I mean, they threw in everything. But um, the only problem is, is that every time they tried putting the show on, it began raining again. Um, This was the most waterlogged World's Fair ever, and so finally, after I think the 12th or 13th performance, the producer went bankrupt and just threw in the towel. But on all the nights when they got rained out, everybody would run over to the auditorium and put on sort of a vaudeville. So you would see this guy dressed as George Washington, DeWolf Hopper, this well-known actor, singing Gilbert and Sullivan ditties. The four elephants would dance the shimmy. So one way or another, there were fun things at the sesqui.
0: Did it ever approach the crowd sizes or or the enthusiasm or the success that they expected? I mean, did they have some peaks at some point?
1: They did. You got over 120,000 people on the night of the Dempsey-Tunney fight. And then only about 10 days later, you had an even bigger crowd at the stadium, 126,000 spectators, mostly Catholic, who came to see Cardinal Doherty celebrate high mass in the stadium. And this was a sign of how um, strong Philadelphia's Catholic community was at the time. They were just beginning to sort of move into society. The city solicitor was Catholic. This was when John B. Kelly was starting to come forward as a democratic politician. And so this was really a sign of their strength and their power and their pride, this humongous outdoor mass. And you did have attendance sort of rising throughout the summer and peaking in September and then dropping off again. How how long was the fair open? The fair was open from May 31st. Um, It was supposed to close on December the 1st. Well, they were so desperate to get any money they could that Kendrick convinced the fair managers to open it for another month and close it on December 31st but all of the uh, vendors most of the displays they had had enough they were packing up by the end of November so if you went to the fair after December the 1st you could walk around the fairgrounds but only a couple of buildings were open it was really a ghost town
0: does anything remain of the sesquicentennial
1: well, um, a couple of things, you know, you did have the stadium until uh, 19, until 1992 and of course that is the reason that our sports center is at the foot of Broad Street despite attempts to move it up north to say to Chinatown. Um, there are a couple of um, buildings that house the emergency hospital, the police department, very minor structures. Uh, There are a couple of outdoor structures like the Outlook Gazebo and the Boathouse on Edgewater Lake that had actually been put there before the fair opened. Everything else... Oh, I'm sorry, you do have the um, uh, American Swedish Historical Museum, but that's not really a survivor. They laid the cornerstone during the fair, but it didn't open until the 1930s.
0: Was there any movement to keep the buildings there and
1: build something from there? The buildings had been so quickly put up and they had cut so many corners and they were so shabby that they were practically falling down by the time the fair ended. Um, The city had a huge auction. Actually, it had two auctions on the fair site in 1927 to try to sell off the buildings and get some money from salvage. And even then, this was a failure. Usually you expect to get like maybe 5 to 10% of your total cost back in terms of salvage. They got less than 2% back. So they spent something like $3 million on all of the major palaces. They got back less than $50,000. And the buildings were demolished very quickly. Um, Some critics charged that this was so that nobody would be able to find out the real cost, the inflated cost of these shabbily built structures. And what was left, and you would go to the fair um, site in the 1930s, and the concrete slab um, floors of most of the big palaces were still there, cracking. They had never taken those up. So nothing really remained. The one thing that people talked about keeping was the Pennsylvania State Building, this beautiful modernist structure by Ralph Banker. Well, Gifford Pinchot was an outgoing governor at the time the fair ended. He insisted that the building be sold no matter what the price and that it be demolished before he left office because he was afraid that it would become a permanent fixture in very controlled Philadelphia. I mean, this entire
0: fair was powered by spite and power grabs, it seems. I wish we had more time because I would want to ask you about William Vare some more because he was elected to the U.S. Senate and they refused to seat him or he was expelled before he was sworn in. But unfortunately, if you want to read about that, you'll have to buy the book. This is the cover of the book, Sesqui, Greed, Graft, and the Forgotten World's Fair of 1926. We've been speaking with author Thomas Keels. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.